thank you for tuning in to Then Again. I am Marie Walker, the director of the Ada May Eifster Education Center at the Northeast George History Center. And today we have a special guest going to talk to us about postbellum women. So could you please introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about you? Yes, uh, thank you for the invitation. My name is Dr. Catherine Rohr, and I am an assistant professor of history at the University of North Georgia, based at the Dahlonega campus. And so my research explores the intersection of uh, gender, religion, and to a lesser extent, race in the uh, 19th and early 20th century South. Which is a super fascinating topic. So can you tell us a little bit about the Civil War? So that's kind of, you know, where we have the the antebellum and the postbellum women. So can you set the stage for us and tell us how the Civil War itself changed women's roles? Sure. Uh, let me speak on that for a few minutes. Um, first, want to really emphasize that the Civil War was definitely a military, political, social, and economic trauma to male and female Southerners, specific to the white population and uh, specifically to elites. Um, elite Southern families lost their labor source. Uh, they lost their social standing in some cases. They lost their fortunes. Of course, Confederate money is worthless at the end of the war. Some are even suggesting that uh, they lost their civilization with the defeat, with their defeat in the Civil War. And so specific to women, let me talk on that for a little bit. wanted to, to emphasize that I, I don't consider the Civil War revolutionary in terms of uh, bringing a new opportunities or new conceptions of gender roles. That said, uh, we do see some changes. For example, we do see a few women who do take advantage of paid work, which in the antebellum era was pretty much unheard of. Uh, so for example, Southern women, and most of these are going to be elite or educated women, are going to work for things like the Confederate War Department, uh, the Confederate Post Office, um, the Confederate master department, the Confederate Treasury Department, more uh, sort of middling and lower class white Southern women might work in nursing. Okay. Um, uh, but in terms of women who are going to be remain are remaining at home, we see them during the Civil War become out of necessity, more independent, uh, more resourceful, more careful with their money. During the war itself, uh, many white Southern women and, and in some cases widows need to learn how to manage farms for the first time or their plantations and households by themselves. Maybe for the first time in their lives, this is the first time that they're managing their slave workforce, at least until the war ends. After the war, these women... Uh, no, no longer have uh, servants to take care of them in their own homes. A number of them are going to be finding themselves single at the end of the war, not necessarily because of their own choosing, uh, but just to throw a statistic out there, by the end of the Civil War, nearly one quarter of Southern men of marriageable age are dead. Uh, so this is going to mean that we're going to have a lot of spinsters in the next generation, um, as well as widows. And so the Civil War um, is going to bring a lot of financial struggle to both men and women, um, and this financial struggle is going to last really for decades. It's made worse by the fact that after the Civil War, we have some devastating uh, depressions, one in the 1870s, 
and uh, one in the 1890s, but also things like we see a glut or overproduction of cotton uh, in the postbellum South. And for those who are tied up with cotton cultivation, that's pretty devastating. But I don't want to stray too much from, from Southern women. I guess I would say specifically to elite Southern women, the thing that is affecting them most is that the Civil War is forcing them to become more domestic. As I said, they're now the ones required to manage their homes, but they're also doing a lot of domestic chores that they never had to do when they had slaves. So now they're doing the cooking. They're doing the cleaning. They're taking care of children. Uh, they're making clothes maybe for the first time. They're doing the laundry. They're doing things like canning. So these are all uh, new responsibilities for them. And so our postbellum Southern women are going to define themselves slightly differently as opposed to just being the leisurely uh, submissive wife, mother, daughter to one that is a little more proactive and will seek a new mastery in the home. White women in the South are now going to try to become the creators and guardians of clean, beautiful homes that housed upright men and well-brought-up children. And I guess i just say a few others are going to enter into a small business, uh, often out of necessity because uh, they were never able to get married, find a, a marriageable aged man, or became a widow. And so a number of women in the immediate post-film era are going to take up petty business ventures like running boarding houses, maybe marketing um, homemade items. Um, in terms of professional advancement, we're not seeing the Civil War bring out a lot of change. They're not now going into such male-dominated fields like medicine or law. But I guess that one bright light would be that we're seeing more educational opportunities for women. Of course, we had our first institution in the South to grant degrees to women with the opening of Wesleyan College that's down in Macon, Georgia, and that opened in 1836. And so in the late antebellum and postbellum era, we will see a number of similar institutions open up in the South. And so with education, women can go into some female-dominated fields like teaching uh, benevolent work, for example, working at an orphanage um, or church work. That's so interesting because sometimes we think back to World War II and the Rosies and how that's such a, a changing point for women. But the Civil War really, you're saying, it, it was almost more of a forcing them to be even more domestic for those elite Southern women. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the difference being at least those who were very much elite before the war could rely on slave labor to do that work. Whereas after the war, they're having to, to take on those responsibilities themselves. But um, you're exactly right that it's it's nothing like uh, World War II that's going to, you know, really inspire women to push for more, especially more professional opportunities and jumpstart the uh, modern women's movement. So yes, nothing like that after the uh, Civil War, at least here in the South. And you were, you were mentioning the the elite Southern women no longer can rely on slave labor, but what is it going to be like for those women who were enslaved that are now freed after the Civil War? What is life going to kind of look like for them in this postbellum world? Yeah, a bunch of points I'd like to make here. Above all else, uh, Black women are going to be in search of safety and uh, economic self-sufficiency. I guess I would say that uh, Black women, but this would also apply to Black men, are going to have four broad priorities. 
Number one, uh, searching for family members who had been perhaps sold before the war or who otherwise, you know, the family had just been broken up. And and so it's going to be definitely a a priority to find, you know, your husband, even though there weren't legal marriages under slavery, but your children, your your siblings, your aunts and uncles. So yes, number one, searching for family members. Uh, Two, getting married legally. That's going to be a huge priority for Black women. Uh, Thirdly, gaining access to schools and education. Education, of course, before the war, we had slave codes passed in each of the southern states that prohibited slaveholders from teaching their slaves how to read and write. And I know that's a bit corny, but knowledge is power. And so African-American women, but also men, are going to strongly believe that gaining an act, gaining an education is going to give them necessary hard skills to to thrive more in the workforce. And I guess a fourth priority I would mention was that Black men and women, but especially the women, are going to take a a pretty active role in establishing churches and taking charge of their own religious lives. Uh, Before the war, they were often the forced recipients of white-directed Christianity. They now want a Christianity that's uniquely their own, apart from any sort of influence from uh, the white community and especially their former owners. And so churches in particular for Black women are going to provide outlets of collective self-help. They're going to foster leadership development among Black women. They're going to sanction group morals and promote public and private education. Um, Relative to jobs, Um, It's going to very much uh, differ depending on whether you're in a city like Atlanta or in rural areas. Uh, If you are in a place like Atlanta or New Orleans or Charleston, for example, Black women are going to be working primarily as domestics or as household workers. Uh, They'll also be finding jobs as nurses um, in daycare, uh, working as laundresses and washerwomen, uh, working in boarding houses. Um, Some, unfortunately, will will resort to uh, prostitution. Uh, Some will work as seamstresses. And a very few are going to actually start their own businesses. Uh, For example, like operating lunch carts in downtown Atlanta. That said, professional opportunities, advancement for Black women, if we thought it was bad for white women, it is far worse for Black women and even in 1900, so that's, you know, more than a generation beyond the Civil War, uh, we have a statistic at least related to uh, Black women in Atlanta that 90% of them, of Black female wage earners, were still confined to domestic work. Um, if they're in more rural areas of the state, um, they're pretty much going to be in uh, relegated to sharecropping and working aside alongside their husband and their families. And that way of life is literally going to exist until really the mid 20th century. I guess challenges that Black women are going to face in the uh, post-bellum era, Black codes, we also know those as Jim Crow laws, um, the rise of the KKK, the Ku Klux Klan in the, in the uh, Reconstruction era, as well as other white supremacist associations. Black women are going to face sexual abuse sometimes by their white male employers. They're going to find quite a bit of discrimination in the legal environment. They're going to be facing perpetually low wages. And as I'm mentioning, um, just very few opportunities for upward mobility. And so there are very few safety 
Uh, Nets for African-American women at this time. You do have the Freedmen's Bureau, which is a reconstruction era agency set up by the federal government. And that is going to set up schools, for example, and help uh, Black females and males establish uh, contracts with employers. Freedmen's Bureau is going to dry up in 1872 when there's no longer funding for it. So beyond that, um, they're limited, going to be limited number of schools that they can attend. Um, if we want to use Atlanta as an example, there is no publicly funded high school in Atlanta for African-Americans until the 19-teens. So the education they can access is going to be pretty, pretty limited. And then a few benevolent organizations and, you know, domestic religious, you know, domestic mission work might be an option. But as I'm saying, relatively, really very few safety nets. Uh, that said, even though the system is perpetually stacked against African-American women, I don't want to portray them as passive, but rather we do see a number of instances of Black female resistance. Okay, Black women are going to feel actually very empowered that they can now quit their jobs when they don't like you know, the job. Whereas in the antebellum era, when they were a slave, they couldn't say to their master, I've had enough of you, I'm leaving. No, you were the physical property of your slave owner and you had no such sway. But now uh, Black women can quit their jobs. They can get away with things like stealing breaks, feigning illness, sloughing off at work, or even boycotting businesses for especially discriminatory policies, such as in the early 20th century when Black women are going to boycott uh, the streetcars of Atlanta. That's so interesting, just the all that they had to go through and were going through at that point. Just there are so many experiences to to try to sum up. So thank you for trying to sum sum it up in a in an answer to a question. That that was really interesting. I would now like to my next point and question would be: could you talk to us about postbellum's women's role in the lost cause mythology, especially elite white women and their role in creating and really perpetrating this idea and how it was a reaction to the Civil War and to Reconstruction and what they were just facing at that time in the postbellum era. Uh, sure. And so for our audience, let me just give a very, very brief definition of what lost cause refers to. So the lost cause is an interpretation of the American Civil War that seeks to present the war from the perspective of Confederates in the best possible terms. So it's a very idealized, very positive representation of the actual war. This is a direct reaction to what they felt was excessive control by the federal government during Reconstruction. That was very much a source of dishonor. And once Reconstruction ended with the uh, Compromise of 1877 and when those federal troops were pulled out from the South, um, we have a number of Southerners white Southerners who want to literally take control of the narrative of the, of the Civil War and uh, portray it in terms that paints the Civil War as a very honorable endeavor. 
And so we think of men maybe being more involved with the perpetuation of the lost cause mythology, but we do have a number of scholars in more recent years who have said, hey, no, actually white Southern women and especially elite white Southern women are going to be very instrumental in, in perpetuating the lost cause mythology. And one one scholar in particular is going to, to name these women uh, pen and ink warriors uh, relative to their efforts in perpetuating the lost cause. But a lot of, uh, or I should say, a large number of elite uh, postbellum Southern women are going to turn to uh, memorial societies uh, like the United Daughters of the Confederacy, ladies' memorial associations, which might do things like uh, raise money for Confederate statues. And so these similar kind of organizations are going to really create a sanitized space to mourn the dead soldiers at the defunct Confederacy. A number of scholars have tried to suggest that by the late 1890, um, elite white Southern women in these commemorative societies like the UDC um, and the Ladies Memorial Association um, have found themselves literally embroiled in militant forms of Southern nationalism and uh, white supremacy. So um, our contemporary scholars are actually assigning them a degree of political agency through these organizations that they were involved with. Um, and so um, there are also these scholars are likewise finding that uh, these lost cause oriented associations um, that Southern women who participated in them feel uh, quite empowered and that they enjoy this entrance into the public sphere because for so long they've been relegated to the private sphere, to the domestic sphere. And they actually enjoy the power that they wield in these lost cause associations. And I know for our for those listening to this podcast, that might seem a little contradictory because on the one hand, these elite white Southern women actually sound kind of progressive in that they're challenging uh, the traditional idea that women always belonged at home in the private or domestic sphere. Uh, but on the other hand, these elite white Southern women are fiercely defending a conservative race, class, and gender hierarchy through these organizations, these associations that are reminiscent of the old South. Um, so for people listening to this who might have more of a knowledge of late 20th century, people might be familiar with the activist Phyllis Schlafly, um, who uh, fought to stop the ratification of the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment, um, these women in the South, these elite white Southern women of the South involved in perpetuating the lost cause mythology are sort of the uh, Phyllis Schlafly's of their day. And that brings me to one of our other topics I was hoping to discuss with you, and that is postbellum women's role in the women's suffrage and anti-suffrage campaigns, and especially for women here in Georgia, because I, I believe that Georgia had one of the largest anti-women's suffrage campaigns going on. And we actually just had an exhibit at the Northeast Georgia History Center about uh, women's suffrage, specifically looking at Georgia women's suffrage and how it was almost like you were saying it's contradictory because these women who are campaigning for anti-suffrage, it, it puts them out there into the public sphere while they're also arguing that they shouldn't be out in the public sphere. So can you talk to us, just give us a little bit more insight into that very interesting, contradictory, and just 
just why were they so anti-suffrage? Sure. And yes, you're exactly right that there is relatively little support among Southern women for suffrage. The uh, women's suffrage movement is definitely centered in the North and to a lesser extent in the West. And to most Southern women and really men, women's suffrage threatened the idealized way of life, at least when it came to gender issues. Now, again, idealized doesn't mean necessarily mean reality, but for a number of Southerners, change has been a very difficult process. And uh, this is just complicating change for them. And so, of course, amendments to the uh, Constitution are passed uh, when, or yeah, passed when three quarters of the state legislatures uh, vote for such an amendment. And, that, and so relative to the 19th Amendment, virtually all Southern states are going to reject uh, the 19th Amendment. And this includes Georgia, but also pretty much all your deep South states like Alabama, Louisiana, Mississippi, South Carolina, uh, but also places in the upper South like Tennessee, Kentucky, and Maryland. Um, they're all going to, to reject the 19th Amendment. There are go- There is going to be a minority of Uh, Southern women, though, more progressive leaning ones, um, even like Rebecca Latimer Felton, who actually has the distinction of serving as senator from Georgia uh, for one day back in 1922. Um, She may have been conservative on some issues, especially related to race. uh, But when it came to women's suffrage, she was actually supportive. And so people like Rebecca Latimer Felton were making a few arguments why Southern women should have voting rights. And so some of their arguments are going to be that, number one, moral, educational, and humane legislation desired by women are going to more likely be passed. Secondly, that legislation that protects children would more likely be passed should women have the vote. Uh, Thirdly, women thought their vote would literally clean up society and keep the ideals of the progressive movement, which we associate with the first two decades of the 20th century, uh, would remain in play. Fourthly, uh, women believed if they had the right to vote, that they would raise the age of consent. And fifthly, um, and this does sound rather racist, but uh, the potential for white women's suffrage would serve as an instrument to literally blunt or reduce the impact of Black um, enfranchisement. Um, So that, you know, of course doesn't sound progressive, but that's that's literally one of the reasons that some Southern white women are going to push for their suffrage because they want to minimize the effect that the Black men and possibly women would have um, in terms of having the right to vote. That's some very strong reasonings there is. It's so interesting. What would be some of the reasons for women not to want the right to vote? Because that seems contradictory to to our ideas today of democracy. So why would someone not want the right to vote? Um, well, as I'm suggesting, they just think that um, suffrage would threaten the ideal way, idealized way of Southern life that a lot of men and certainly still a lot of women, despite their entrance into the public sphere through their lost cause organizations, they still believe that women's voices, or excuse me, women's influence uh, should be relegated to the home. Uh, There's just a discomfort that women have any input into the political process. And uh, even though the Southern Belle image we associate with uh, the antebellum era that's still alive and well in the postbellum era, even if women really can't embody it because of uh, economic reasons. 
uh, but still there is that ideal that women should be submissive, uh, leisurely, delicate, the effective hostess, concerned with only superficial things. Those are things we associate with the antebellum Southern Belle. And even though she can't be replicated in the postbellum era, there's still people who think that should be what women aspire to. So can you tell us a little bit uh, more about perhaps these ideas of the Southern Belle? You were just telling us about how they affected postbellum women's and their kind of sense of self. Can you tell us a little bit about some where that idea comes from and some of the actual perhaps Southern Bells or the idea where the idea really comes from? if there's an origin? Uh, yeah, the Southern uh, Bill ideal is, as I said, is very much a product of the antebellum era. And it's a way to showcase a family's success and social standing. It is considered uh, quite an accomplishment for a white male planter to be able to say that his wife or daughter does not need to cook or clean or make the clothes. Uh, but rather being able to say my life leads a very leisurely, stress-free life is sort of a penultimate symbol of financial success. That's And that sort of goes with the gone with the wind image. But I'd like to say that it's more image than reality. So the vast majority of women who were even working and living on plantations are doing just that. They're working. They're managing a slave workforce. In some cases, they are making clothes for their children. In some cases, they are, you know, cleaning, operating a kitchen garden. So the the, the Southern Bell ideal is, is really more myth than reality. But that said, that very elite population, we're talking, you know, the top one to three percent of white Southern women might belong in that to that sort of Southern Bell ideal. Now you mentioned Gone with the Wind, and I think that's it's such an interesting topic of just Gone with the Wind in general, the, the book, the movie, its impact on culture, and the also the idea of Southern women with the very, very interesting main character, Scarlett O'Hara, and her idea of being a, a Southern Belle, but also a businesswoman and very much running her own life. Can you talk to us a little bit about Gone Gone with the Wind, its publication, because it, it was published well after the Civil War in the 1920s. So how did that also affect this really next generation of post-bellum women? So women who had not lived through the Civil War, but are very much experiencing the realities of this post-bellum world without actually having gone through it themselves and how that affected their sense of self, their their idea of, of what the South was and how that still affects people today. Yeah, I guess I would say that Margaret Mitchell's book is much more true to reality than the Hollywood movie from 1939. I think Margaret Mitchell's book is underrated because people associate it too much with the movie. Um, I think she had a fairly accurate sense of what your typical slaveholding woman's life was like. The movie, the 1939 movie, in contrast, is going to emphasize a very idealized image of the plantation and will very much play up that Southern Belle ideal and this life of leisure. It's, a, it's slightly more accurate in the sort of second half of the movie. Uh, looking at the ways by which the Civil War transformed elite white women's lives, certainly. But uh, the movie was enormously popular in 1939. 
And for better, for worse, when people are asked, what is your image of the old self, the antebellum self? It's going to be gone with the wind that comes to mind. And while that may have applied, that lifestyle may have applied to a very small number of uh, people, it, it is not, uh, it does not typify uh, the antebellum South or Civil War South at all. So what would you say, we've talked, you know, a lot about the the elite and also perhaps people on, on the other end, the newly freed African-American women. Is there really a middle class at all at this time? Yes, in cities, pretty much only. We see, thanks to promoters like Henry Brady, who is editor of the Atlanta Constitution in the uh, postbellum era, is going to really promote Southern cities, Atlanta in particular, as places that are going to embrace a more diversified economy. We're going to see the beginnings of industry in places like Atlanta and Birmingham, Alabama, for example. And so with industrialization and modernization, we see the rise of a middle class because we need people like lawyers, uh, we need managers, uh, we need people in banking and finance. And so we do see the very beginnings of a a middle class. Um, Now, middle class did technically exist even in a few antebellum urban centers like Savannah and Charleston before the Civil War, but it really does take off in the uh, postbellum years. All right. So I think that's the end of my questions. Is there anything you wish I had asked you or final thoughts that you would like to give before we wrap up? Um, I I think this is, you know, just a a really fascinating topic. And uh, it's something we've only learned about in fairly recent years. Okay, the uh, scholarship on Southern women, really, we don't have our first comprehensive book on antebellum Southern women until uh, the 1960s. It's really the women's, the modern women's rights movement that's going to her interest in, in women. And so it's really been in the last 20 to 30 years that we have much more tailored, specialized scholarship on Southern women's experiences, whether that relates to, you know, their religious expressions or conceptions of gender or their working lives, or their romantic lives, their working lives. It's its something that we're continually working on, and uh, I hope to, to be part of that dialogue that goes forward. All right. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Rohr. This has been a fascinating subject to, to hear about and listen to, to you teach me uh, really about how this very interesting and complicated topic that, as you were saying, we're just kind of really getting to dig into and, and to really examine the roles that women have played throughout history and especially Southern women during the postbellum era where it's it's such an interesting time period that really forms the the South as it is today and, and its perception of, of itself, its perception of, you know, who they are, where they were going forward. So thank you so much for joining us today. This has been incredibly fascinating. Well, thank you for the invitation. Then Again is a production of the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps other people discover the show. There are a few great ways to support the History Center. Make a donation online by clicking the donate button on our website at www.negahc.org. Become a digital member to receive exclusive invites to members-only live streams every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern. And you can register on our membership page at www.negahc.org. 
We also have an online gift shop with lots of great items for all ages. Use promo code THENAGAIN for 15% off your online order. Valid on anything except memberships and handmade items. We'll see you next week for another episode of Then Again. Thanks, y'all. 